Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. I know we've been in this text for the past two weeks, but I think we've got just a little bit more gospel juice, a little bit more nectar to squeeze out of this text. And in particular, I want us to look at the last few verses, but we're going to read the whole thing here and then settle in. Let me begin by reading Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18 again. This is the preacher of Hebrews, his main argument is encouraging first century Jew Christians, ethnic Jews who become Christians to not buckle under societal pressure and persecution to go back to Judaism, to not go back, to hold on to Jesus, to draw near to him. He's better than anything before. Hebrews 2 verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who the, through, through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. (laughs) Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful text. We need to see Jesus this morning. I pray that you would help us do that. Help me help us. And help me by helping me say true things about your word. And then, Holy Spirit, who wrote this word, would you blow away the dust? Would you clear the windshield of our mind's eye so that our hearts would would catch a flame with who Jesus is and how he helps his people? 
I pray that you do this for our good and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I think if you ask most Christians about what Jesus has done, past tense, with their sin, for their sin, I think most of us, if we've been around good gospel truth and preaching and teaching for any length of time, would would probably be able to come up with a pretty good answer that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And so in a sense, we know that one day we will stand before our creator and he's holy and we by nature are not. And so we need a mediator. We need somebody to go between for us to stand before a holy God for us. And we know that Jesus has done that. He's God in the flesh. He's completely God. He's But he's just like me, as this text has said. And so we have a sense of what Jesus has done for us before God, for eternity, and that our sins are forgiven. But this text not only addresses that, as glorious and as important as that is, but it also speaks not just to what he has done, but what he is presently doing for us. And I want us to think about that. Now, I have joked... We've been a church for about 18 years, and uh, some way along the way, I sort of sarcastically picked up, and I know I can be kind of snarky. I'm maturing. I hope you see that. I'm getting better at this. But I sort of, every now and again, I'm kind of a snarky preacher, and I'll say something like, the point of a sermon should not be just to help us have a better Tuesday. And I'm going to be the hypocrite of all hypocrites today, and I, th- I think the point of the text today that we're going to settle on Ultimately, in a spiritual sense, is to answer that question, not just what has Jesus done for us before a holy God, as glorious as that is, our sins are forgiven, there's gone, there's removed from as far as the east is from the west, but but what is Jesus doing for us right now? Right now, how is he helping us have a better Tuesday as we fight temptation? And I think that's the point of this text, or at least what I want to settle on on verse 18. But before we do that, I just want to give us a quick review because I don't think we can get to that because upholding all of that, the foundation that I think that truth and that application stands on is everything that happens before. So just by way of reminder, I just want to call our attention again to the glorious truths that we've been marinating on for the past couple weeks. I want you to see in this text in verse 10, speaking of God the Father acting on God the Son, and there's this wonderful picture that he's bringing many sons to glory. The Father is doing something, he's accomplishing something by making the founder the author of our salvation, perfect through suffering. So there's this plan of God from beginning of time to actually bring about the redemption of a great multitude of people from the fall that happened according to his sovereignty through the lamb, the son that was slain before the foundations of the earth. And there's this spectacular phrase in verse 11 that I can't get over, and I don't want any of us to ever get over. It says that Jesus, speaking of him, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. We, we all come from the same Father, and he's become like us in our flesh. He's completely like us. And that's what it says in verse 11, the second half. The conclusion is that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I don't want you to get over that. We settled on it a couple weeks ago. And and then verse 12 
quotes this verse from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is this wonderful psalm of David that is what's often referred to as one of the messianic psalms. It's a song that David wrote hundreds of years before about his real-life experience as a king, but then is actually prophetically about Jesus and his ministry. And so Psalm 22 is about Jesus being forsaken and given up on the cross. And there's this turn in the middle of Psalm 22. I think it's about verse 22 where it says that Jesus, now this is the king and it's speaking of Jesus. It says that he comes down into the midst of the congregation and sings to God with his people. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus does in his work on the cross for us. So think of it this way. Jesus is, is, is the, the scripture's telling us here that Jesus is not ashamed of us. And not only is he not ashamed of us, he comes down from heaven into the congregation of sinners who have every reason to be ashamed. He wipes away their shame. He takes away their condemnation. He puts his arms around his people and he sings praise with them back to God. And he says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers and sisters. That's glorious. I'm going to... a. a a pastor's conference in uh, the nation of Texas this week. And uh, I just sometimes, I've just confessed to you, sometimes I have this little insecurity when I'm around pastors. You know, we all just kind of, we, we sort of peacock. And these are a great group of guys. It's more my insecurity than it is theirs. But there's this kind of this sense, you know, you think about, oh, well, how are you doing? How do you do this? And you kind of realize, oh, this guy's, they're a lot better at this than we are. And so you just kind of, you have this sort of like sense of shame about your minute. You just kind of wince. You know that, uh, well, yeah, we're, we're kind of, well, whatever. Well, uh, I don't really want to. And you try and divert the conversation away from the things that might sort of cause you a little bit of embarrassment about how you're doing. Does anybody else do that? Or am I the only just totally insecure person around? But, but, but this picture is, is that because of what Jesus has done, when we will stand before God in his holy of holies, there will be no wincing on Jesus' part. I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. I know we talked about that a couple weeks ago, but I just don't want us to get over that. And why is it that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers? Well, because it continues in verse 14, because he has become like us. It says that he partook of everything that we face. He became like us in our flesh and blood, and he was incarnate. He became like us in every way, yet without sin. So he became like us so that he could become a worthy sacrifice for the sins of people. He became a man so that he could die in the place of men. So he's not ashamed because he's become like us. He identifies with us and he's not ashamed because every reason for shame, he has borne the penalty and the punishment for that on the cross. That's what verse 17 says. It says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, here's that word, it's this beautiful word, propitiation for the sins of the people. It means that Jesus, in his humanity, 
in his perfect humanity, became a perfect sacrifice that completely satisfied, absorbed, extinguished God's wrath and punishment and turned it into God's favor and love and grace for his people. So now the reason why Jesus is not ashamed is because there's no reason to be ashamed because if we are in Christ, there is therefore now no, Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the reason that the shame is gone is because he's become like us, he's identified with us, he's been sympathetic towards us, he's merciful towards us, and he's borne the penalty for our sin. And oh, by the way, just as an aside, verse 14 is glorious, it says that he put to death, through death, he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And remember what we talked about last week, how the only power that the devil has is a power of accusation. The only weapon the devil has in his arsenal is the truth of God's word, which condemns us for our sin. That's why the Bible calls him an accuser of the brethren. He's an accuser of the brethren. But the accuser of the brethren, the devil, has been thrown down. He's been defanged. His tongue has been ripped out of his mouth. Because if Jesus has died for the thing that would accuse us, which is our sin, and he's wiped away his punishment, there's nothing more for the devil to say. And so he has been destroyed. He had this derivative. He had this granted power of death on a temporary sense. The only thing he could do was remind us of the consequences of our sin. But the consequences have been removed. And so his power has been destroyed. And now the consequence of that is Jesus has delivered us from, as people who were scared of death because we don't want to die. Therefore, we can face whatever we're facing knowing that God will bring us safely home. So we're delivered from that. And that's just, oh, that's just review. Which then brings, so that's what Christ has done. That's what he has done for us. But I want us to, to see something in verses 16 and 17 and 18, and in particular 18, because it'll just be the balance of our time today. Look at verse 16 again. It says, for surely it is not angels that he helps. And why does he bring that up? Because he's made this comparison at the end of chapter 1 that Jesus is better than angels. And he's actually wanted to show us that we're, we're actually more important in God's redemptive plan than angels, far more important. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Who is that? In a New Testament sense, in a New Covenant sense, it is the people of God who trust in Christ. It's not speaking of ethnic Jews. It's speaking of those who by faith are offsprings by faith of Abraham. So the offspring of Abraham in the new covenant is the people of God, Jews and Gentiles, people from every tribe and tongue who are trusting in Jesus. So he's saying he's helping us. In verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. We've talked about that. He became like us so that he might become a, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So, so, so he's not only faithful to God, his, his incarnation didn't just accomplish something in a Godward sense that it satisfied 
I want you to think of the, the, the two directions of, of Jesus' work here in his incarnation. It's not just satisfying God's holiness in that vertical sense, but in a horizontal sense towards us as his brothers in the flesh, he becomes merciful towards us. His disposition towards, one, towards us is one of mercy and sympathy. So he became like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now verse 18. And here's this difference that I want to draw this contrast. Not just what he has done in a past tense sort of way, but what he is presently doing now. For because, I want you to see the logic of verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted present sense. Present tense. So in this, in this moment right now, on a Tuesday morning, he is helping us. When, when, when darkness seems to be clouding in, Jesus is helping us to, to resist sin, to, to fight the fight that we still have to fight, even against the sin that he has already satisfied the punishment for on the cross forevermore. I want us to look at verse 18, and I want us to stare at, it for, for stare at it for the balance of our time together. He himself has suffered when tempted. What, what does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus just merely suffered on the cross? I think that's certainly part of it. But Jesus' temptation in his life and his death wasn't just merely on the cross. It was, it was throughout his entire life. He's the holy of holies. Come down. Become like us. And his suffering was a decades-long suffering in his holiness. He resisted temptation and never gave in. And now because of that, here's the logic of verse 18. Because Jesus has done this, because he has suffered for us in our place, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So I want to ask this question, and I want to hopefully answer it helpfully. How does he help us? How does he help us? I want to give kind of three broad responses to that, and then one narrow response to that. So three sort of all biblical responses, sort of broadly. And then the fourth answer to that, I want it to look specifically at, at this text. So how does, how does Jesus help the offspring of Abraham? How does he help us when we are being tempted? How does he help us in the moment on that, that morning when we feel all alone? Or that evening when world, the world, the flesh, and the devil just seem to be crashing around us? How does he help us? One... Broadly speaking, he gives us his, his spirit. If you're a Christian, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ is dwelling in you. The third person of the Trinity is yours. This is what it means to be born again, to be a, a, a temple of the Holy Spirit, to, be, to have God dwelling in you. Think about the implications of this truth. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11 says, You, however, this is Paul speaking of the Christian, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But listen to this. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him 
who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul is giving us there a sanctification, glorification guarantee. So if if you're a Christian, this verse is saying that the triune God through his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, which is referred to in multiple ways just in this text as the spirit of Christ, the the spirit of the Father, the, the spirit himself, he is in you and he's saying in verse 11 that if this is true, then the very reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead, he will raise you and he will bring you all the way home. So in one sense, although we've got work to do, although we've got temptations to fight, although we've got sanctification to participate in, there is a greater reality that is true of you if you're a Christian, and it is that how does he help us? His spirit lives in you. That's the truest thing about you if you're a Christian. The Spirit of God dwells in you. And John puts it this way. We'll actually read it next week as we're reading through 1 John. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Just as a note, I, I tell you, I was a, it's been 30 years now. And I was a, 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 a cadet at the United States Military Academy. And I say this to young men who... Um, who may just be battling the world, the flesh, and the devil, and lust that just seems to be tossing you to and fro. And that particular verse, when I was a young man, and I'm not trying to act like as an older man now. Uh, am, I, am I an older man now? I guess I am. I, am I? Uh, yeah, okay, you don't, have to, you don't have to say amen too loud. But <laughs> I'm not trying to act like we ever get past these battles. But I can remember a particular time in my life when these battles were raging and they were so intense. The flesh just seemed so strong. And I can remember 1 John 4, 4 just, just being something that I just, it, it felt like an oak tree that I would hold onto when the hurricane force winds of my lusts would blow against my life. And I would remember that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Maybe that's a word for a young man or a young woman in here that seems to be getting tossed to and fro. The Spirit lives in you. Friends, we don't have time. In fact, it would be impossible to plumb the depths of that reality and how important that is. God lives in you. He's active in you. That's that's point number one. Point number two, how does he help us? He's given us his, his word. This is clear. This is evident. He's given us his word and his word is not static. It's it's active. Listen to first Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13. This is what Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says, I want you to see this picture. He says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. And then notice what he says about the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's at work in you. When we take in the word of God, when we hear the word of God rightly preached and taught, when we read the word of God, 
There is something below the surface that happens in the Christian's heart and mind. It's at work in us. In fact, if you look just, if you have your Bible still open, Hebrews 2, which I hope you do. If you look just a couple chapters ahead in Hebrews 4, verse, verse, verse 12, it says that the, this famous verse out of Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's active in you. There's, there's something going on in your spirit when you take in God's word and it's alive, it's active, it has a mission. And Isaiah says prophetically about the word of God that it does not return void. So it's working in our hearts, it's working in our mind. It's working in our spirit. He's given us a spirit. He's given us his word. Thirdly, he's given us, he's given us one another. He's given us the local church. He's given us other Christians. That's why, friends, you have to be part of a local church. You have to be known. You have to be accountable. You have to have a, a group of people, fellow Christians, that know you, that, that will miss you if you're gone, that have a, a certain responsibility towards you. And, and that's why we take here... Church membership so important, so, so seriously, and think it's so important, is because it seems to be implicit in the Bible to be this sort of built-in mechanism by which God encourages and protects and forms his people. And the way he does it is by, by making us deal with one another not in our perfections, but in our inadequacies. And as we have to actually live out the gospel, the grace that was given to us, as we then have to extend it to one another, it does something in us. It helps us become more and more like Jesus. That's why I love this quote. There's this wonderful quote from Spurgeon 150 years ago where he said, brothers, I think he was one of the first ones that said this that I can find in kind of church history. He said, brothers, and it was a sermon he preached on the church, and he called it the dearest place on earth, the local church, the dearest place on earth. And he said, brothers, brothers, please, if you find a perfect church, don't go there because you will surely ruin it. <laughs> and, and one of the spiritual battles in our context is we want everything to always be excellent. And in some sense, we, we should pursue a kind of excellence in our worship because it's befitting that we should do this for God. But there can be a kind of way that it produces in local churches a kind of consumer mentality where they actually miss the whole idea of gathered worship is to, yes, honor God, but not to produce a show, but to love and encourage one another in our challenges, our inadequacies, and the things that are hard to love about us. And that's actually what God intends to be in our lives for our transformation. In fact, the, the, the very design of God is that we would do life together with people who are hard to do life with. It's part of God's design. The dysfunction of a local church is, is part of God's design. That you would deal with my dysfunction and I would deal with yours and we would put up with each other and not run from place to place when we get offended or we get tired or we get bored, but we bear with one another. And that's how Jesus helps us 
through the course of a Christian life. Listen to this verse from Galatians chapter 6. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear, bear, shoulder, lift up, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this takes work, it takes effort, it takes commitment, it takes a certain kind of grit, it takes a certain kind of patience, a certain kind of, and I think I'm making up a word here, but I think you'll understand it, it takes a certain kind of otherliness. And when we do that, and when we realize that Jesus, part of, my, part of the way Jesus helps me is by giving me a local church that's imperfect, just like I'm imperfect, and I'm forced to bear with one another as everybody bears with me, that what it does is it actually forms Christ in me. And as I see you going through something, it helps to build me up. So the way that Jesus communicates his strength to me is not just this personal relationship between me and Jesus in a private kind of sense. But as I look at all of Jesus' people and I see people enduring things and I'm strengthened by that. Oh, I, I won't mention this family's name, but I was just meeting with somebody this week and they're part of this family. <laughs> that this family, this family has gone through so much over the years. That if I, if I recounted to you all the things that they have endured, and you, yeah, yeah, we can make an argument that some of it's things that's happened to them, and some of it is the consequences, consequence of because of the things they've done. Yeah, we're all a strange mix of our own sin and the sin that's happened to us. But these people have borne up under challenge and trial and difficulty in such a way that when I look at them and I saw them this morning when I walked into the sanctuary, my heart is strengthened because I know that Jesus is helping them and the same Jesus that helps them can help me too. And I see them week after week after week and Jesus uses it to put steel in my spine. He gives us one another, friends. So he gives us his spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us one another. That's in a broad sense. And in this text, I want us to look at this to end. He gives us his triumphant suffering. He gives us his triumphant suffering. Look again at, at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. I want you to consider that phrase, that he himself has suffered when tempted. I want to just offer you an illustration that I heard years ago. I think it's helpful about Jesus' suffering, temptation, enduring temptation perfectly for us, and how that then becomes ours. Think of a, a line of trees. It's a line of trees in a row. And think of gale, think of strong winds coming to blow against those trees. Maybe the wind is at 50 miles an hour, and a couple trees fall down within the first hour. And then the next hour, we ratchet up the wind machine, and the wind now is at 75 miles an hour. A couple more trees fall down. And then a couple hours in, we ratchet up the wind to 100 miles an hour, and 
and more trees fall down. There's just a few standing now. And then we ratchet up the wind machine again to 150 miles an hour. And, and just about every tree falls down, there's a few standing. There's one in the middle and maybe a couple on each side. And then the next hour, we ratchet up that wind machine to 200 miles an hour, Category 5 hurricane or whatever it is, and it knocks down every tree except one. And then we ratchet up that wind machine to the highest that any wind could ever blow. And it blows not just for the next hour, but it blows for 33 years. And that tree holds. It holds. And it stands. And it takes that. And then it lays that perfect resistance. That wind machine is cut off. And it lays that perfect resistance and all of that strength and all of that righteousness. And it lays that strength down to satisfy the failure of all the trees that have ever fallen. And by that sacrifice on the cross, what I think this verse is saying is then it, it replants those fallen trees, sticks them in the ground, and gives them it takes away their failure, and it gives them the straight, same root system and strength that that one tree had that resisted all the way to the end. And now that righteousness, that success is ours. It's ours in that moment of temptation. And here's the glorious news. Even though we fall again and again, a righteous man falls six times, the proverb says, but yea, he rises a seventh because of grace. And I, I want us to stare at this picture that Jesus has suffered when tempted. And so that, that Tuesday morning, how do, you have, how do you fight these things? We remember that the Spirit lives in us. We run to his word, we, we read his word, we run to one another. We have relationships that, that we can go to, people that we can talk to. We, we pray when we need prayer. We don't just check the box in a kind of coming to church sort of way, but we're real with one another, we're honest with one another, we're raw with one another. And when we gather, we stare at the tree who's endured the hurricane for us. And something happens when we stare at that tree, when we stare at the glory of Jesus' resistance for us, our hearts are wooed and warmed. I think something mystical, glorious, spiritual, unseen happens. This is what way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says in verse 18, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. And then verse 18, I'm reading the wrong verse there. Verse 18, uh, yes, that's it. I, I read the right verse. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we see Jesus, it does something in us. It transforms us. It makes us more like him. We look on him and our hearts are melted. He warms and woos our heart and in that moment, Jesus becomes more attractive than the temptation that we're facing. And his victorious suffering becomes ours 
and the disposition of our hearts are slowly changed. Our affections are altered. And slowly but surely, we have a distaste for sin and temptation and more of a hunger for righteousness. I was talking to a young guy in this church, a young ranger, who's in the ranger battalion, and I I met with him recently. And he heard the gospel from a friend in this church. And I think it gripped his heart and saved him. And over the course of this time, as he's now living still in this dark environment where there's a bunch of soldiers around him that are trying to entice him to sin, and he's trying to be the best witness that he can be for Christ, and he's just this young soldier with, in, in really a, a, a kind of cave of darkness. He, he's seeing Jesus more and more, and slowly over time, he recounted to me over lunch one day how slowly his appetites and his taste and his strength and his resistance began to grow and the things that he wanted to do previously. It wasn't just all of a sudden, but over the course of time, the Lord has slowly but surely changed his heart and his affections. He's certainly, he's not walking in perfection. None of us do, but the Lord has given us his spirit. He's given this brother his spirit. He's given us his word that he's devouring. He's given, us, he's given this brother other Christians around him, and he's seeing the gospel afresh, and it's strengthening him. And slowly but surely, he is in a place where he is so much stronger than he was six months ago because of the suffering of Jesus is his. Friends, that's, that's the glory of this gospel. That's how Jesus helps us on a Tuesday morning. That's how he helps me. That's how he helps you. And before we run on to chapter 3, I want us to sit in this and see this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to help you now. The glorious gospel lands in your life because that one tree held and it's yours. The strength of that tree is yours. Stare at that truth and let it woo and warm your heart. Let me pray. Lord, as we respond I pray that we would see this truth I pray that we'd be fortified by it and strengthened by it Lord I pray if there's a young man or a young woman or an old or man or woman or anywhere in between that is being racked that is feeling like the truths of the gospel are so far away. They're only for judgment day, but how do they help me now? I pray that that person would see this truth that Jesus suffered and is able to help us now. A person who's battling discouragement and depression and lust and temptation, Lord, come in this moment and Jesus would your suffering become real to them would the strength of your victorious resistance be theirs afresh in this moment and Lord would that person if they're being racked by hurricane force winds would they not leave this room today before they grab another Christian and pray with them and ask God, to make this clearer to their heart. Lord, as we respond, may we respond in worship and repentance and joy. In Jesus' name.
Amen.